Good day, everyone. Can you hear me? My audible? Great, thanks. Inez, uh, yesterday she spoke really beautifully about greed and faith. And uh, tonight, uh, today, whatever time it is for you, I'm going to talk about the, the second pair of the defilements and their wholesome counterparts, um, aversion and uh, wisdom or discernment. And I particularly wanted to talk about uh, this pair because it's, uh, it's very relevant to me and has been during uh, my entire journey through life. I think um, for a lot of us, uh, there's a tendency when we hear the word aversion to think of hatred, of cruelty, of really strong ill will. And of course, aversion includes all those things. But it also includes all the more subtle, less obvious ways that we push away uh, experience, that we find fault with how things are right now, that we disapprove and blame and subtly resent situations or people. Impatience, slight irritation, maybe a little roll of the eyes or a snort of disapproval, all those signs. The sense in meditation when we're when we're sitting that something is wrong, something needs to change. I'm not mindful enough. The teacher needs to stop talking. I can't sit here for this long without moving. Why, why do they expect that of me? So many ways that we perceive some flaw in our experience, and then then we take a stand against it. So those more those more subtle forms of aversion are more likely to be what we're what we're dealing with. I think both informal practice and the rest of our lives. Those of us in this room, this Zoom room. So these three pairs of qualities that we're exploring this week, they're described as um, six basic uh, temperaments that characterize people's personalities in a text titled uh, The Visuddhi Magga, The Path of Purification, a, a really important text in the Theravadan tradition that was written in the 5th century, so some 900 years after the Buddha. So greedy, aversive, and deluded temperaments uh, arise out of what the tradition calls the three poisons or the three defilements. These, these three fundamental orientations to life that are the roots of unskillful behavior, the roots of how we cause suffering for ourselves and for others. Greed, hatred, what I'm going to refer to as aversion, and delusion, what we're talking about this week. And the other three basic temperaments described in the text are the three wholesome tendencies that we're also exploring this week. Faith or confidence and wisdom and equanimity. And if you've been practicing uh, in this tradition, this insight tradition for very long, you have surely heard uh, probably many talks about at least one or two of these, maybe all three uh, of these defilements probably many times. And in practice, of course, we have all run into them in our minds and hearts. None of us are immune from their influence. And coming to understand their operation in us, to see the ways that they color our experience, 
that's a really big part of our practice in this uh, in this tradition all along the path from the beginning to close to the end getting to know them and learning to see how they operate in us how they affect us that's the first step in this transformation that they go through so Inez read um, a translation of this uh, this sutta from the numerical discourses of the Buddha during the opening of the retreat on on uh, Wednesday. And here's a, a slightly different translation that I'm going to read right now. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the defilements that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so they do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the defilements that visit it. This, the noble followers of the way, that's us, this, the noble followers of the way, truly understand. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind. cultivation of the mind. So when our minds are free of the defilements, we can recognize how they color our experience, how they obscure this luminosity. And that recognition, that makes it possible for us to cultivate the mind, to move towards the wholesome, to, towards the, um, the other end of, uh, of these pairs of, uh, of difficult and wholesome uh, mental qualities. And one way I like to think of these defilements, one way of describing them, <clears throat> excuse me, is as lenses through which um, people, we, tend to view our experience and that they color our experience. And all of us, until we're fully awake, have times, lots of times probably, when we're looking through one or the other of them, often without actually recognizing it. And each one of these lenses really distorts what we see in in, uh, in different ways, in particular ways. Greed um, is maybe like wearing uh, rose-colored glasses because it makes things more attractive. There's the tendency to uh, to crave and cling that Inez spoke about. About uh, I know the Dalai Lama sometimes says greed puts feathers on its object. You know, it decorates it, makes it look really desirable. And aversion, I think, is, is kind of like looking through a, a strong magnifying glass. So it tends to magnify all the imperfections or the, the dangers. And so there's a tendency to push away or to try to escape in some way. If you've ever looked at a, a, a really ordinary object like a, like a coin through a strong magnifying glass, you, you can see how there Little tiny scratches and nicks that are invisible to the naked eye. They stand out. They're really obvious. And then delusion is maybe like looking through a foggy or smeared uh, window. You know, things kind of blend together. We don't see detail clearly. And the tendency then can be to lose interest, to not pay attention at all, to space out, to get bored. And, of course, all of us find all of these unskillful tendencies within ourselves. But I think most of us tend to specialize in one, and it can be useful to, to discover which one it is. The Vasudhi Maga includes uh, 
descriptions of the typical behaviors associated with the three uh, three temperaments um, related to the defilements. And some of these are kind of funny and they seem kind of ar- arbitrary. For example, um, greed temper- temperaments are said to prefer rich, sweet food and to eat slowly, while aversives prefer sour and bitter food and they gulp it down without tasting it. And the text describes that delusion temperaments as not really caring what they eat and making a mess while they're eating. So, I don't know. I don't have a lot of confidence in those descriptions, but there's a kind of test that I think gives a good hint about what our particular uh, favorite, if you want to call it favorite, distortion is. What's this? Imagine you're coming into a new space, maybe someone's home that we've never been, and there's a party going on. If greed is predominant in your uh, temperament, you're likely to focus on what's beautiful and pleasant. The nice furnishings, maybe the sunlight coming through the windows, delightful food the host has provided, interesting people maybe. You're predisposed to enjoy it. An individual with more aversion will notice first what's not right in the environment. There's a draft coming in, the windows are dirty, the food's too sugary, it's not healthy, the music is too loud, there aren't enough chairs. You're predisposed to find fault with it. And the deluded, putting that in quotation marks, deluded person might not notice notice much at all. Just be sort of oblivious to the details of the environment and maybe not sure about whether they should stay or, or go home. And the purpose of creating these categories in this text was not to judge people, but to get a sense of what kind of practice would be best um, to allow the defilement or poison, often they're called poisons, these three, um, to allow them to transform into the wholesome qualities that they're paired with, which are actually inherent in them, you know, hidden beneath the the, the unwholesome. coding that they provide. The understanding is that we all have all these tendencies within us, so we need to learn to work with them in a way that is transformative. So defining ourselves or defining others um, as one of these types and using that to, you know, beat ourselves up or puff ourselves up, that's that's not useful. (laughs) That's not useful at all. They're just conditioned. They're deeply conditioned, to be sure. But still, they're conditioned. They arose due to causes and conditions. They're tendencies of mind. They're not who we are. And each of them has this silver lining, this beautiful quality within that can be exposed when we really clearly see what is extra. And when I first heard about these three uh, poisonous temperaments, I immediately knew which one Budagosa would assign to me, and that is the aversive temperament. My mind has always had a tendency to tune in to what is out of order, what is out of place, what doesn't work, what needs to be avoided in any situation. For example, I don't like to shop. 
But often when I do find myself shopping, I spend a long, a long time because I'm, I'm trying to avoid all the things that might not be exactly what I need. And as a matter of fact, if I go grocery shopping uh, with my husband, my dear husband, who is more of a greed type, I often find myself taking things out of the shopping cart that he's put in or asking him why he put something in. I'll say, look at the ingredients. It's full of preservatives. You know, he's just happy to try something new. It's sensible, of course, not to eat food that isn't nutritious. But getting impatient and irritated about a little bit of junk food in the shopping cart is just unnecessary dukkha for both of us. And aversion or ill will also, of course, it affects our attitudes to people, both both ourselves and others. And personally, I've been uh, pretty hard on myself in my life when I've made mistakes and uh, and quite early on in my in my Buddhist practice, I realized that I had a, a really deeply held view. It was unconscious, but it was there underneath a lot of other behaviors that there was no middle ground between perfection and unacceptability. In order to be okay, I had to be perfect. And since I could see that it was really clear I wasn't perfect, that meant I was unacceptable. I remember um, in college, I, w- I was unwilling to raise my hand to answer a question or make a comment unless I was absolutely sure it was the right answer, the best, the very best answer. And imperfections in my body, social mistakes I made, they were just occasions for really deep shame. And of course, that that aversive tendency colored my views of others as well. Their imperfections also pushed them into that category of being unacceptable in my view. There was a rigidity in the way I looked at the world. Of course, no matter... Which of the three kalesas, the three defilements, is most prominent in us? It's safe to say that we all find ourselves with an outlook colored by aversion from time to time. It might be uh, when we see particular politicians or hear their voices even. might be a reflexive reaction to someone driving in a way that seems dangerous or foolhardy to us. Maybe there are particular groups of people that we feel aversion towards, perhaps fearful aversion, perhaps a more aggressive flavor like ill will or even hatred. Racism and other forms of prejudice are, of course, kinds of aversion. And then, you know, violent crime, all all the forms of cruelty that people inflict on each other and on animals, wars. They all arise from this root, this tendency to be in opposition, to push what we don't like away. And evolutionary biology tells us that um, this kind of negativity bias, as it's called, this tendency to push away or to escape, it's part of our, our evolutionary inheritance as human beings. 
it arose in us naturally. Early humans evolved in the presence of really big predators that were a constant threat to our existence. We were prey animals, looking for safety, avoiding risk. You know, our minds were already conditioned to cling to what was pleasant and safe, to greed eventually, and to get rid, to try to get rid of or escape from what was dangerous or unpleasant. And those tendencies are there in our neurology now. And their original purpose, of course, was to keep us safe, to keep us alive and healthy. And that's true of all animal forms, even, you know, right down to one-celled animals, little creatures. But somewhere along the way in our evolution, the, this survival instinct to avoid danger, and uh, it got entangled with hatred or anger or unrealistic fear with these unwholesome qualities. Being cautious around snakes, you know, then maybe turns into hating snakes. Getting chased by a dog as a child, you know, maybe leads to a, a lifelong fear of all dogs. It generalizes. The Buddhist texts tell us that the kalesas arise, these defilements, they arise because there is ignorance in the mind. Ignorance doesn't allow us to see clearly. It ignores truth. It misses it. It can change a sensible discernment about what's healthy and what's dangerous into a rigid view of our experience that's colored by ill will, colored by fear. Or, you know, a combination of will and fear. So there's discernment hidden behind the ignorance in aversion. Aversion and wisdom, they're paired because they exist on a kind of uh, a continuum, a spectrum from fully aversive to fully wise. And at one end, there's just so much ill will in the mind that it completely controls a person, like being in a blind rage, you know, totally unable to see what you're doing or even to explain why you're so angry. And then at the other end, wisdom is so profound that uh, that clarity of vision is, uh, is pristine. You know, nothing can disturb our peace. And we could say that the way aversion transforms into wisdom is really by getting the ignorance out of it. Being able to see the flaws and ways of avoiding danger or unnecessary difficulties, you know, those are great qualities to have. I know for myself that having this basic orientation towards life has really, it has supported developing discernment. Jack Cornfield, you know, who was uh, one of the, the founders of, uh, well, one of the founders of Insight Meditation Society in, in Massachusetts, the first, uh, the first retreat center in this tradition in this country, the United States, and, uh, and also the founder of Spirit Rock, where he still teaches the meditation center here in California. <clears throat> he, this is a quote from him about uh, the staff at, uh, at his retreat center. He said, some of the most important ideas at Spirit Rock come from the caring dissatisfaction of our aversive types. They don't want to pick up, they don't want to put up with mediocrity or lack of integrity, so they speak the truth about problems and catalyze the group energy. So, you know, discriminating between what is wholesome and unwholesome, 
what's healthy and unhealthy, you know, not putting up with mediocrity or lack of integrity. That's discernment. Those are good things. But then aversion, when that when when the aversion gets into it, that focuses on the unwholesome and focuses on what's a problem and then just recoils from it or moves to attack it in some way. But when aversion transforms into wisdom, it sees the big picture. And then we can move towards what is wholesome, what is healthy, what's bringing us into integrity, taking us out of mediocrity. It doesn't have that that characteristic of ill will, of uh, you know, that movement in the mind that is uh, that is unhealthy. And the Dharma gives us tools to move, you know, from that uh, from aversion to wisdom. To see clearly, to clean the lenses that we're looking at the world through. The first thing that's required is to recognize that aversion is there, that it's present. And it's this isn't always easy. Um, when there is aversion present in the mind, it has this tendency to color everything we see with negativity. We're like a fish in water. We don't see the aversion. We're looking at the world through it. And we tend to believe our view of things is simply true. So hold that thought. One frequent way that aversion has shown up in me is as a tendency to be uh, really cautious, really cautious in new situations, kind of on the lookout for anything that, that might turn out to go wrong, anything that could be dangerous or unpleasant. Because of this, I'm a, I'm a really good planner because <laughs> I'm attuned to what might go wrong and to finding ways of avoiding difficult situations. But in the past, uh, there was this tendency to really over plan to try to avoid any little thing that might turn out to be difficult. I had a habitual pattern that I called keeping disaster at bay. Might sound familiar to some of you. And one difficulty with having this strong tendency or aversion is that it often comes along with that certainty that I mentioned, that belief that our views are simply the truth. So a way of working with aversive tendencies that can help them soften is to begin to question ourselves. Noticing a kind of reflexive, negative response to something, we can stop, we can take a step back, and look at what's going on from a wider viewpoint. And that really helped me with that keeping disaster at bay pattern. <clears throat> in the first um, 12 or so years of my practice in this uh, insight tradition, I sat a month-long or a two-month-long retreat every year. And uh, those retreats were all at, uh, at Spirit Rock up in, in Marin County here in California which is a really beautiful place to practice, a beautiful place to sit a retreat. There are lovely walking trails uh, up into the hills there. And uh, I would take a hike every single day at lunchtime, going up to the top of a hill overlooking the retreat center, where it was views all the way to San Francisco, some 30 miles away. And the whole hike up and back um, would take me about an hour, no more. And when I took these hikes, every day I would take 
a full water bottle, just in case it took me longer than I expected. A little day pack with a notebook and a pen, just in case I had some wonderful idea that I needed to write down. Some ibuprofen, just in case I sprained my ankle or something. You know, an extra layer of clothes, just in case it got maybe chilly or something. And when cell phones became a part of my life, I took my phone as well. It's turned off, of course, but, you know, just in case I needed to call 911, keeping disaster at bay. And on one retreat, when uh, mindfulness was strong as a result of practicing intensively for many days, I saw clearly that these seemingly very practical preparations for my little hike were actually motivated by fear. There was a fearful aversion to risk, to the possibility of anything going wrong. I could feel the effect of that fear in my body and in my mind. There was a, a compulsive quality to the need to prepare in this way, this really detailed way. It was contraction in the mind and in the body, the opposite of ease. And so I consciously decided to let go of most of those items. And when I did, the weight that I wasn't carrying in that little pack that I carried was nothing compared to the weight I wasn't carrying in my mind. I was still prepared, but prepared just enough. You know, you could say wisely prepared. Resisting the, the pull of that, that neediness to make the hike absolutely risk-free, that was really freeing. It took courage, too. It wasn't easy to do. It felt so good to not be dragged around by my fear. And it taught me that it was possible. It reinforced the idea that I didn't have to listen to that fearful voice inside. And it made it more likely that I could ignore the fear next time it came up. Discernment arose when I was able to step back and see that the fear was not realistic. The fear had been like that magnifying lens that made every possible negative outcome of the hike stand out as huge. So there were two takeaways for me that I think are really useful in working with aversion, in working with any kind of hindrance, really. And the first is being mindful of our inner state, really Really paying attention, keying into what our mind and heart feel like, what our body feels like when we're in the grip of some aversive thinking or action. Mindfulness of the body is just hugely useful in this, I think. There's a definite somatic quality to aversive states. When I was making sure that I had all the bases covered, my throat and neck were kind of tight. My breath was constricted. And in addition, my mind felt tight, felt constrained, tense. There wasn't any enthusiasm or pleasant sense of expectation about the hike. The mind was full of the subtle, have to, have to do this, got to bring that, a kind of compulsive energy. 
you know, then there can be a kind of a seductive quality to that kind of compulsive energy. It can be really easy to believe that it's it's true. It's true what it's pointing to. Until we really tune into its effects with mindfulness, it can feel like it's right, like it's appropriate. But I think as we practice, I know it's been true in my practice, we, we come to know anytime I know, anytime I feel that kind of tension in my mind and body, I experience it as dukkha, and I know that resisting its pull is the best way forward. And then feeling that tension and knowing that it's a red flag, that the second takeaway for me is to take that step back and question, what are we believing about this situation? Is that true? Is it true what we're believing? You know, in, in that example I gave, I asked myself if I really needed all this stuff in order to be safe. And I decided to find out by going without it and just see what happened. And the result, you know, seeing that I didn't need all that stuff, it really increased my willingness to take more risks, to not believe in the fear. You've probably uh, heard the, the famous teaching from the, from the Buddha, whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of one's mind. It's hugely important teaching, I think. And it, it's one that can guide us into more skillful ways of relating to our lives in so many different circumstances. And in this situation that I described, by doubting my habitual response and being unwilling to try something new, I was changing the inclination of my mind being willing to try something new. I was changing the incl inclination of my mind in a beneficial way. You know, I was moving away from fearful aversion, moving towards discernment, real discernment about the situation. And that willingness, that willingness to question our habitual thinking, that, that, that can allow then discernment to kind of get the upper hand and to become stronger than the aversive tendency. For me, in that uh, in that example, just choosing not to believe in the fear that was driving the, all this over over preparation, I became really curious and skeptical about it. Curiosity and skepticism about our aversion, about our grief, those can be really useful. What would ha be, happen if I didn't believe that I needed to keep disaster at bay? And what happened was more ease, more space, more freedom in the mind, and, of course, more fun on the hike as well. So we can doubt our aversive mind state. We can question it. We can be curious about it. Is this really accurate? And we can be mindful of its effect um, on our state, you know, its effect on our mind and heart, to feel what it's like in the body and mind to be aversive. And I think when we do that, when we really get intimate with how it feels, we can see that it's dukkha. And then we know it's not leading us in the direction that we want to go. The traditional um, advice uh, for, um, for working with aversion is to use antidotes when we find ourselves in, the, in an aversive state. And 
The classic antidotes to aversion recommended in the texts are metta and compassion, kind of the opposites of aversion, loving kindness, friendliness, concern for suffering. So when we're under the, the spell of uh, disapproving, of pushing away, we cultivate caring, we cultivate friendliness. When we do that, we're undermining the tendency to find fault with ourselves and with others. We consciously cultivate these wholesome states of mind, which then can weaken and undermine the unwholesome, unwholesome ones. Believing in our aversive views or acting out of them, that just keeps them going. But when we cultivate beautiful mind states, we're creating conditions in the mind for more of them to arise. That same teaching from the Buddha applies. Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon becomes the inclination of one's mind. I mentioned earlier um, the view that I was unacceptable that I held for many years of my life. There was so much self-judgment and so many aversion to so many aspects of myself that and that that expressed in me as uh, as shame as a really deep shame which is a very damaging form of aversion to oneself i think and meta practice the classic antidote to aversion that was uh was absolutely transformative for me and uprooting that shame and coming to accept that not being perfect was perfectly okay. I practiced metta intensively for several years, sitting a lot of metta retreats, both long ones and short ones. And I can still remember really clearly the first time I was able to offer metta to myself and actually feel it, feel my own care for myself, was a major turning point in my practice. Nobody's perfect. And we are still lovable. You know, that's wisdom. And of course, that that same approach that uh, we can use with ill will towards ourselves is useful with ill will towards other people. Practicing friendliness in daily life, you know, even when mild forms of aversion show up, like a little bit of impatience when we're driving, you know, waiting on the phone for tech support. (laughs) Have you ever experienced a little... Irritation with that, finding our partner or roommate or relative left the top off the toothpaste or, you know, some household thing like that. We can notice the initial little, you know, niggling resentment or annoyance and we can turn it around, maybe just letting go of it and maybe consciously offering a friendly wish. We can gradually drop the demand that everybody else be perfect, just knowing how universal it is that people are just not perfect. We're conditioning the mind in the direction of wisdom, away from away from ill will. I think it's really useful to um, to pay attention to areas where we habitually react to what's going on with some kind of aversion. Um, I think we all have our kind of favorites. I think you know in that area. Maybe it's the news. Maybe it's some particular person in our lives. Maybe it's a certain kind of music when we hear it. There's there's advice in the in the sutta that the sutta t- titled "All the Taints." It's in the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle length discourses of the Buddha. That's really helpful. It's basically 
don't go there, you know, to put it in colloquial terms. The term used in the text is unwise attention. Attending unwisely is giving attention to any topic or situation that we know will give rise to aversion in us, to an aversive reaction, anger, ill will, aversive fear. So the the advice is to avoid attending to those things. Instead, we practice restraint. We don't doom scroll. We don't feed our already held views about some situation in our life or some situation in the world or some politician or coworker or whatever it is. We turn our attention elsewhere. Many years ago, I was on a long retreat. Um, and it was the, the retreat started the day after I had found out that uh, someone in my family had been um, dishonest and had acted uh, secretly in a very self-serving way. And uh, it was really sneaky. It was a very nasty situation. And I thought when I went on retreat, oh, this is really going to, this is going to be filling my mind as, as, you know, in the, in the retreat, but it didn't actually. Um, but after a week or so on the retreat, when I'd become really quite concentrated, there was a lot of samadhi in, in the mind. It felt very settled and spacious. And I thought, oh, this is the perfect time to bring that situation to mind. I'll be able to deal with it really wisely. And what happened was, as soon as I brought the situation to mind, I was filled with rage, just filled with rage. It was kind of unbelievable. But within a minute or so, I realized that bringing that into my awareness was really a mistake. It was the definition of wise, unwise attention. I had a lot of concentration in the mind, but there wasn't a lot of mindfulness. Strong mindfulness was not present. And that when that's the case, that concentration can really magnify the experience of anything we pay attention to. If we look at something or someone that we find attractive, it can turn into infatuation. You know, you might have heard of Vipassana romances. And if we look at something we don't like, it can turn into the opposite, what we call a Vipassana vendetta. And that's what happened to me. I, I, I looked at something that was I already had a, a kind of a negative view of, and boom, the aversion just exploded. And that was just a perfect example of unwise attention. I should have known better, but I didn't. But I learned something. And, of course, sometimes we can't avoid situations where we know we tend to get a little bit testy, you know, a little bit grumpy. Might be when we're driving, finding it easy to react with uh, irritation or anger to other drivers. Or maybe it's dealing with a particular coworker or relative or even friend sometimes. We might not be able to turn our attention somewhere else because we have to be in the situation. But we can recognize, oh, my mind is really colored by irritation now. And we can practice restraint. We can practice wise speech, not indulging in the aversion, not acting out of it. I've chosen, uh, you know, not to focus so much on the more dramatic ways that aversion uh, shows up in life. But 
of course, uh, it does show up in dramatic ways in, in the world. Rage and hatred and aggression are, are part of the picture and, and they are an important part because they do so much damage. And sometimes, you know, hatred actually arises in us, I think. Maybe not in some of you, but in some of you, probably it does. And if it does, you know, it's likely to take more effort to transform it into wisdom than it does the uh, the more subtle forms of ill will. But the very same principles apply. We have to get curious about it. We have to question it. We investigate it with mindfulness, not just reflexively believe it and go along with its demands. We need to feel into it, to feel its effect on our experience of life, that that unpleasant, tight quality that comes along with aversion often. Usually underneath the hatred, there is either a strong fear or a sense of having been hurt or harmed. And working with those underlying emotions, can that can undermine the, the ill will, the hatred that, uh, that can arise. And the antidotes, of course, are also really useful. I think for me, especially compassion is useful when there's strong ill will. When we feel ill will towards someone because of some harm they have done, compassion can arise when we recognize that that people only harm others because they're suffering in some way. I don't think anyone who is really uh, in a non-suffering state in their life harms other people. Hurt people hurt as one reformed uh, gang member once said. And we can also extend that compassion to ourselves when we're feeling ill will because ill will itself is a really, uh, it's a strong kind of suffering. And when, but when ill will is stripped out of anger, when anger loses ill will, what's left can be the wisdom, the discernment, to work to improve the situation that triggered the the aversion. There can be a a kind of all-too-natural tendency to hate injustice, to hate hatred, and that often generalizes then to hating those who we feel are unjust, hating those who hate. But we know, you know, I just hate using that word. I've been using the word hate like five times in the last two paragraphs, and I can just feel the effect of it on me is really... It's, it's really painful. As the, as the Dhammapada, you know, one of the oldest texts of Buddhism states, hatred never ceases by hatred. By non-hatred alone, it ceases. This is an ancient truth. What we think and ponder upon frequently, that becomes the inclination of our mind. When we gradually let go of ill will or fear or defensiveness from aversion, what's left is clear seeing, the ability to discriminate what is skillful from what's what's harmful. And the Dharma gives us tools to do that. It's up to us then to put it put those tools to use. I mentioned uh, before that if we have strong aversive tendencies, it it can be hard to see them because the aversion distorts our our view of everything um, that we come in contact with. Looking through it, we we only see what's beyond it. We don't see it itself. 
an old uh, teacher of mine used to say that we need to change the prescription of our glasses. Um, I like that. But we won't see the need for that until we see that our old glasses aren't really serving us well. And my sense is that when we practice mindfulness for any length of time, we begin to see the mental tendencies, the mental habits that have driven our thinking and behavior in our lives more clearly. Seeing those clearly, then we can make different choices. You know, we can see the ones that have served us. We can see the ones that have not served us, that have led to to suffering, to dukkha. And more and more, the, and more and more that we feel the dukkha directly in the habits that are driven by greed and aversion, then we begin to make wiser choices. We start moving in the direction of that really wise end of the spectrum. We start, we practice thinking and pondering upon what we want to be the inclination of our minds. And eventually, that luminosity that's inherent in them, it will reveal itself to us. So to close, I just want to remind us about those lines from the Buddha that Inez shared on uh, on Wednesday and that I shared at the beginning of this, this talk. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the defilements that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand, and so they do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free of the defilements that visit it. This the noble followers of the way truly understand. So for them, there is cultivation of the mind. So, noble followers of the way. Thank you for your attention.